This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are looking at the under-addressed book called Song of Songs and exploring the ramifications of avoiding the topic of sexuality. Yeah, sexuality. No presentation today. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so. Song of Songs. All right, I got some notes for me. Interesting topic today, so <clears throat> so uh, yeah, I'm just gonna dive right in. Song of Songs. I've been working through the wisdom literature, um, and we have one more book to discuss. I, I should mention we, I, I call this wisdom literature from a Jewish perspective. Um, it's not like they don't identify wisdom literature. They definitely have. They definitely see a wisdom tradition. Uh, I'm not sure they would put this book in there, but they don't have a section of the scriptures that they call wisdom literature. So I'm doing that for, I know when I was raised in Protestant Christian upbringing, studying the scriptures, I know we had a a way of talking about wisdom literature. Um, I'm doing it more for the purposes of my teaching and the fact that most of my audience is definitely Protestant Christian. So uh, that's kind of why I'm doing it. Song of Songs ends up in the, uh, we've talked about the Ketuvim. Can you remember what that meant, Brent? The writings. The writings, right? Yeah. So we had the Torah, books of Moses. We had the Nevahim, which was the prophets. And then we had the Ketuvim, which is the writings. Song of Songs definitely ends up in the Ketuvim. It's a part of what's called uh, Chamesh Migalot, the five scrolls. And uh, there's three different sections to the writing. Uh, the first one is the poetic books, um, books of poetry, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, and uh, and Job, I believe. Um now, I'm going to flip right over here and check that before I give anybody false information. Yeah, Psalms, Proverbs, Job's, Job. And then uh, Chamesh Migalot includes Song of Songs, Book of Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Book of Esther. So even even the, the Chamesh Migalot puts this um, in, uh, in the same section as... Uh, as like Ecclesiastes. So there's some wisdom literature in there. Uh, the other books of the Ketuvim end up being Daniel and Nehemiah and Chronicles. They kinda, they're kind of they kind of outliers. They sit in their own um, uh, section, if you will. So, uh, so as we're talking, uh, let me just give it that disclaimer. We've been working through the wisdom literature. Um, and uh, we've got one more book to discuss before we turn our sights towards the prophets. Um, we've been discussing the idea that throughout the period of history where Israel struggled with a cycle of redemption, our theme for the book of Judges, um, during this period, and even and even going into the Kings, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, like during this whole period as Israel is struggling to walk the path, uh, applying it to our lives during our periods of struggle as we try to walk the path, um, I, I suggested that God provides us with tools and that's kind of how I like to teach the wisdom literature. There's a few, there's a handful of books here written during this period, written by some of the kings, written by David, Solomon, collected by Solomon, written by maybe others, who knows. And uh, there's a collection of writings here that serve as tools um, that we're going to need. We're going to need these tools with us on the journey if we're going to make it uh, through the struggle that you and I know as life. And so we talked about um, Psalms, because we said we're going uh, to need to sing. If we're going to make it through this struggle, if we're going to make it through the daily uh, slog, we're going to need songs. We're going to need to sing. And then uh, we're going to need some wisdom. 
And so we talked about, um, what do we call Proverbs, Brent? Wise sayings that are generally true. Wise sayings generally true. W-S-G-T, shorthand. Um, yeah, these are these wise sayings that are generally true. So we're going to need, we're going to need songs. We're going to need wisdom if we're going to make it through this journey. We're going to need some daily nuggets of goodness, if you will. Uh, and we're going to need, we're going to need purpose. And so we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes and we said that Ecclesiastes was all about meaning in life. Um, but there's one more tool that we're going to need. If we're going to make it, if we're going to somehow make it down this path that's hard and sometimes it's rewarding and sometimes it's not and just that path that we know as life, we're going to also need relationships. Now, this book is going to focus on sexuality. Uh, I don't want to give the implication that what I'm saying here is we're going to need romantic relationships. Uh, there's amazing, uh, there's an amazing call uh, for a lot of single people out there. And the church has done enough to give the implication that if you're not married, you're not whole or you're not enough or you're not complete. And uh, scriptures are quite adamant, early Christian teaching, very adamant, um, that there is, there is a special gift, the gift of celibacy, if you will. Um, and that's not just for monks, although that's not, that's amazing. It's not just for priests, although that's amazing. There's a lot of people, just general, average people, that God has called to a different kind of experience. Now, most of us have had different experiences or are headed towards different experiences. Um, but I don't want to insinuate that in order to make it in this life, you're going to need to find a spouse. That is certainly not at all on any level what I would ever want to communicate. In fact, Paul might suggest something quite a bit different, which is... This, the whole thing gets a lot more complicated when you get married. It's not to say that marriage is bad, not at all. But but every situation has its has its blessings and uh, has its struggles. So without a doubt. So so we we have Song of Songs to talk to us about relationships, and this always ends up being a a really good discussion, especially for college students in particular. Song of Songs is a biblical piece of literature that's loaded with sexually charged language. Um, there have been many attempts to trivialize the language and make the book into a metaphor that expresses God's relationship with his people. And I'm not, I'm not totally against that. I mean, obviously, we could go back to our podcast and where he talked about the wedding at Mount Sinai. Uh, I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, Song of Songs could definitely, in the background, be used to talk about the relationship between God and his people. A lot of uh, the Jews do that throughout rabbinical teaching. Nothing incorrect about that. But to ignore the primary purpose of the letter, which is this sexually charged erotic poetry, uh, is to do a huge disservice, uh, I believe, to uh, the body of Christ and uh, readers of the scriptures. So let me unpack a little bit what I mean by that. Here's one of the things I mean. There is a place to discuss and appreciate discussion about the beauty of sexuality when it, within its appropriate context. There is a place to discuss and appreciate discussion about the beauty of sexuality within its appropriate context. Uh, I, I have a, a passion for this topic because I, I believe the church just does not talk, has not for quite a while, does not today. Uh, we don't talk about sexuality well. Uh, and when we do talk about it, uh, we talk about sexuality as a bunch of, as a moral code. I mean, when we, when we rare, we rarely do, but when we talk about sexuality, it's about all the things you are supposed to do. And pretty much mostly it's about all the things you're not supposed to do and what's okay and what's not okay. And, and, and I, I have never heard a single, uh, teaching 
um, from anybody, and I'm even going to recommend a few teachings here in just a moment, uh, but I've never heard a sermon series on applying the way of Jesus to uh, the bedroom, the marital bedroom. Uh, I've never heard a series on selflessness and the selflessness of marital sex. I've never, we've, we've never ever sat back and talked about, um, we've just talked about what is okay. Is sex okay? Is this kind of sex okay? Is that kind of sex okay? It, it's always a, a morality discussion. Um, and, and it's no wonder that we have such a dysfunctional ability to lead our culture in issues of sexuality, uh, to impact our culture in issues of sexuality, um, because we don't know, quite frankly, what to do with our sexuality. Um, the topic is viewed largely as off limits and is therefore an untouched oasis of misunderstanding. Uh, I like that line. I wrote that a while ago. <laughs> uh, an untouched oasis of misunderstanding. Man, who wrote that? That's pretty good. Man, my goodness. Uh, we have so much skewed understanding in the realm of Christian sexuality. Uh, I'm not even sure we, we even know where to begin. Um, I know just over a year ago, I, well, golly, it would have probably been two or three years ago now. I wrote a, uh, golly, it's probably been longer than that. I'm getting old. Um, but when I first moved up here, yeah, it had to have been, had to have been more like six years ago now that I think about it. It was my first two years in campus ministry. I was so struck by the amount of sexuality conversation that I was having with students and the lack of anywhere to go in the church to have that conversation um, that I wrote. I, it was going to be an eight part uh, blog series. I actually had to stop. I stopped for four parts in and just really didn't feel like I was the authority or my something was off. And I still haven't felt like necessarily to this day, I have the green light to, uh, that God has given me the nudge. It's okay. I just don't feel something's off. I'm not sure what it is. Um, and so I'm going to be actually reading for our discussion groups. I'm going to be reading those posts. So a little teaser for those that come to to discussion group. I, I'm going to read those posts um, aloud uh, for the people that t- I feel like that's a safe space. I'm not going to read them on the podcast. And maybe that's hypocritical of me. I just got done talking about how we don't talk about it. And uh, I want to talk about it a little bit here. I want to be honest. That's part of the problem. We're not honest. Uh, we're not honest about this stuff. Um, but I'm not sure how honest I want to be in how much of a public forum. So uh, I won't be sharing those blog posts here. Um, this is a topic that we've proven um, uh, people lose their jobs over. That's unfortunate. That's actually part of the problem. That's, that's a major part of the problem. Pastors can't, we can't learn about this. We can't wrestle with this. We can't talk about it because if we do, uh, and if we happen to say the wrong thing, uh, we lose our jobs. We all know it. Um and it's charged politically, it's charged morally, it's, uh, and it's only getting worse. The less we talk about it, the worse it becomes. But uh, obviously I'm ranting, so I'm going to, you know, let me move on. Uh, to avoid a rant, let me just uh, say that we need to discuss healthy sexuality more within the Christian discussion. Uh, Song of Songs proves it. If we need, a, if we need proof, this is the book. Um, Hand the book to any married couple who has been married for at least a few years, and they'll tell you that the book is just full of sexually charged poetry. Uh, Young Jewish boys were not even allowed to read this book until I believe they had their their bar mitzvah and were of marital age. Uh, That's how sexually charged this book was, and all the Jews knew it. And so young boys, this was one book that they were not allowed to read and memorize until later. It wasn't even a part of the canon until later. but It's a pretty short book, so... It is. You know, 
you've got plenty of other stuff to memorize in the meantime. You can just you can. <laughs> sneak that one right at the we'll, end. We'll tack that on in at the end. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's it, the descriptions that you'll find in this book, um, the descriptions that the lovers give to their beloved's body, uh, barring some cultural barriers, like your teeth are like shorn sheep descending upon Mount Gilead. It's a little hard to make that resonate in our world. Unless you're a sheep farmer. Uh, maybe unless you're a sheep farmer. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. My wife has never, you know, the lights have never come on for my wife when I've told her that her teeth are like newly shorn sheep. I don't know very many people who are, grew up around sheep, so it's hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, so barring some cultural barriers, um, their descriptions of their beloved's body will make any reader blush. It's not hard to understand what the bride is talking about when she describes, quote, opening the gate, unquote, or letting her lover into her garden. Uh, this is absolutely steamy stuff. Um, I mean, there's just parts of the book that are explicitly... Uh, talking about different sexual acts and anybody reading that honestly sees that as they read song of songs. Um, now I, I'm sure that some of you uh, might even be a little uneasy with the fact that I just talked about quote, opening the gate and letting her lover into her garden. When I read those last two state sentences, which is actually my point. That's actually the problem. Um, uh, it's in the book and we get to read it uh, as we look at song of songs. Um, but the fact that these topics are off limits, I often tell my college students, uh, one of the other dysfunctions that we have is, is when we think about, um, there's that, there's that funky conversation when you're an adolescent and you have parents, uh, and the conversation ever starts to go towards your parents, uh, sexuality, marital sexuality. Um, and, and there's like, there's this automatic response that culture teaches us oh, like, oh my gosh, I don't want to hear this. Mom and dad don't talk about it. Uh, and I always love to bring that up with my college students going, now, wait a minute. Don't you hope, like, don't you hope that your parents, if they're, if they're married, uh, have a thriving, vibrant, sexual, married life? Like, I, I would imagine that that would be, if, I, if it were me, and I, and I cared about the wholeness and the thriving of my parents, and they were married, I would, I would hope that my parents, be them in their 40s, 50s, what, whatever, would be parents uh, that, that had a sexuality that was vibrant and alive and practiced. Um, but of course we don't want to talk about it. We want to, we want to act like it doesn't, this is not going to breed functional sexuality. We, we have an interesting cultural problem. Um, so if we continue to act like we're not allowed to discuss sexuality, it's, it's craziness. Uh, there is a healthy, appropriate sexuality. Healthy sexuality is to be celebrated. As much as healthy eating, healthy psychology, healthy spirituality. In fact, healthy sexuality is a part of healthy spirituality and psychology and vice versa. We are holistic built beings. Uh, our sexuality is a part of who we are. Our, our sexuality is something uh, that um, it, it doesn't sit over in its own category it's not kind of, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Uh, I am a mental, intellectual being. I am a spiritual being. I am a physical being. I am a sexual being. Not just if I'm married, every human being is a sexual being. Um, 
marital relationships get to experience that in a particular way. But we are all, as human beings, part of us has a sexuality. To act like that doesn't exist, or at least to not address it, uh, is not going to be uh, a holistic approach to discipleship. Um, And so uh, as a campus minister, uh, it has to be a regular part of my conversations with students, obviously, particularly men. Um, but even in, even in group settings, uh, this is a large part of our conversation because it's undeniably a part of our human experience. So I'm going to, th- I'm going to recommend a couple books here. Um, if you want to read more about that idea about us being sexual beings, I'm going to recommend a book, uh, sex God by Rob Bell. Um, and, uh, I know some people, the rest of my talk here, I'm actually going to pull from a Numa that Rob also did. Um, so we'll wrap up our, our podcast here with, with just a few thoughts uh, about the different kinds of Hebrew love. That, that conversation actually comes from a NUMA video that I watched years and years and years ago uh, from Rob called Flame. Um, so we will put that in the show notes as well. Now, some people might be, you know, I mean, Rob Bell's kind of a polarizing figure anyway. Um, and, uh, and, and some might be thinking, golly, he's like the worst person to go to. The worst for your sexuality resources, to which I'm like, I, I disagree, but nevertheless, um, great. So who else is talking about it? Who else is talking about sexuality in a way that's not about morality? Um, you know, I, I, I read Driscoll's book, not a fan. Um, I, there's not a whole lot of works out there. There's, there's not a whole lot of uh, works out there that are saying this is what healthy sexuality looks like. This is where sexuality comes from. Um, there are some specialized books, uh, about different issues, uh, but we're not having this conversation. So I don't have a whole lot of options to recommend. So if we don't like it, somebody ought to do something about that. Well, I've seen that Numa video and I do like it. It is good. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's from like years and years and years ago when people still thought he was not a heretic. Yeah. I think I saw it probably in like 2004 or yeah. something like yeah. it was it was a while ago yeah when you look at it you'll definitely realize boy that's bleach that's bleach hair rob bell <laughs> <laughs> yeah he hadn't gone off the deep end so you can, you can trust what he said <laughs> back then for sure oh, my goodness okay uh i think brent said that tongue-in-cheek he knows i'm a big rob bell fan uh yeah all right so uh let's see here um so let's just talk about love for a moment and part of the problem. Now, uh, there are three Hebrew words that can be used to talk about love, particularly romantic love. The first uh, word for Hebrew love is rayach. Now, rayach, for those of us that say shema, we say shema at the beginning of every class. We talk about, uh, at the very end, there's a line. Be'ahavta rayacha kamocha. And that means what, Brent? Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, love your neighbor as yourself. And the word for neighbor is rayach. Rayaka, right? Rayaka is your neighbor. And so the word rayach and rayacha are connected in root. And this is a neighborly or a brotherly love. It's a love you would have for your your neighbor or your brother. Um, The word expresses uh, a kind of familiarity. But when it's used in a romantic sense, uh, raya is the poetic infatuation that a person experiences when they begin a new relationship where they can't stop thinking about the other person. Uh, when I do this talk for weddings, I often say, it's the, it's the raya that says, no, you hang up the phone. No, you hang up the phone. No, you hang up. No, I love you more. No, I, it's that electric poetic infatuation that is raya. 
Now, the next word for love is achava. Achava is not raya. It's not poetic infatuation. Uh, achava is commitment, both romantically and not romantically. Achava is a kind of love that says, I'm going to be here for you no matter what happens, no matter what comes around the corner, no matter how I feel. Like raya is all about my feelings. It's all about the electricity. Achava is a love that it doesn't matter what my feelings are. It doesn't matter if the electricity is there. Um, I'm, I'm going to be there for you no matter what. Uh, now, what's interesting, side note, little PS here. When we were talking about Shema, we had, what was the last line, Brent? Ve'ahavta. All right. So the, and so the kind of love, love your neighbor as yourself. God doesn't ask us to raya arayacha, to brotherly, neighborly love my neighbor. God asks us to have ve'ahavta achava, ve'ahavta reyacha kamocha, to love my neighbor with a committed kind of love that says to my neighbor, I'm going to be here for you no matter what. Um, it's an interesting little side note. Now, romantically speaking, there's a third kind of love. So we have raya, which is the, the infatuation, the, 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 the she's my best friend, um, that kind of love. There's the achava, which is hopefully what a marriage a marriage commitment could, would, would be about the, I'm going to be here through thick and thin till death do us part, good times and bad times, rich or poor. And then there's dode. Now, dode can mean uncle, but uh, romantically speaking, when it's used as romantic love, dode is the sexual erotic love. Song of Songs will use the word dode, uh, I believe twice, um, where it talks about, uh, um, uh, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth for your dode is sweeter than wine, I believe is the quote. Um, uh, she speaks of his erotic love, his his sexual intimacy love, and she calls out for it. And so that's, that's dode. Now, the point that Rob makes in the Numa video uh, is very uh, well taken, which is um, you as a human being, these loves, when we speak of romantic marital relationships— these loves are designed to, uh, to work together. So the Numa is called flame because he speaks of every love as a flame. And by the time he gets done with the video, what does he do, Brent? There's like a giant fire. A gigantic bonfire. Yeah. Apparently you could see it from miles and miles away, I've been told. Um, it, it's, you know, you got to see it. <laughs> it's impressive. Uh, and, and the illustration is, listen, you got Raya and it's a flame, like a match, a lighter. And you got Ahava, and it's a match, and it's a lighter. And you got Dode, and it's a match, and it's a lighter. But the three are designed to work together. And when you put them together, you get this huge raging fire, which is the marital relationship as we read about it in Song of Songs. And the dysfunction happens in culture when we take one of those loves away. And so, and so we might know people. Uh, we might be we might have parents or we might know others or it might even be us who, who's in a relationship where there's dode uh, and there's ahava, but Raya left the building a long time ago. And it doesn't like, now Raya always, by the way, <laughs> important for college students that are listening, Raya um, comes and goes. It's a natural part of our experience. There are definitely mornings, you've been married for a while, Brent. Uh, there are definitely mornings where we wake up and we're not exactly just charged full of poetry. I'm, I'm almost never charged in poetry. 
You don't say. I'm not really known for my words. Man, that sultry Although voice. Although maybe to some of these podcast listeners, <laughs> podrishioners, they might only know me through my voice, but not a not necessarily a big words person. Yeah. So <laughs> that's funny. Um. So that that's a part of love that rages and dies. It's a fire that that waxes and wanes. Uh, it has an ebb and a flow to it. That's why ahava is so important. But we all know, we all know those relationships that they're not even trying. Raya, raya is not even, there's not even an attempt at raya. And so the, the marriage is dysfunctional. Or maybe a marriage that has raya and there's ahava, but there's no dode and something seems to be off and something seems to be missing. Or there might be relationships. Um, uh, of course, we have the dysfunction of our culture, which is we don't have the ahava. We have the raya and we have the dode, but no ahava. And that creates its own dysfunction. So these loves that are put within uh, human sexuality are meant to be experienced together. Um, so I have, I have some closing notes and then a closing observation. Uh, when we speak of romantic relationships, we have to understand that God designed all three of those loves to work together simultaneously within a relationship. The struggle comes when we find one of those loves missing from the equation. In the college culture, it's very popular to engage in dode after experiencing brief rayah and not have any achava. It's dysfunctional and destructive. Ancient biblical culture, if you remember our description of arranged marriages, so go back to like, think about ancient Eastern marriages. They start with Ahava, they move into Dod, and then hope and hoped and worked for Rayah. And if that wasn't accomplished, it too was dysfunctional and destructive. So it's not like there's a method here that's the right method. But they all approach it from a different angle, and they all have their particular challenges. We certainly have our challenges in their culture. And I find it interesting to imagine the biblical culture, which would start with Ahava. What a, like, we look at that in our culture, we think it's like almost unethical. Like, how dare we start before there's any raya, before we've learned if there's any chemistry? It's not necessarily a right or a wrong, but it certainly had its pros. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say our approach is working very well in our culture today. Um, as far as success rate. Uh, so many of our weddings in today's culture are bathed in raya. It's about the music and the poetry, and she looks so pretty, and the music and the reception, and hey, photography, awesome. It's all about the raya. It's all about the electricity. It's all about the, the emotion and the beauty and the poetry. But that's not what a marriage is supposed to be about. Uh, all those things, by the way, have their place. I had to hope so. You do a fantastic job taking wedding photos. Uh, and I want the bride to look beautiful on the wedding day. And I, I hope that there's a ton of fun. And I hope that there's wonderful dancing. But that's not what the wedding is about. The wedding is about ahava. And we've missed that. So we tell our kids to pursue relationships. We celebrate their rayah. And we tell them to prepare their relationships for ahava. But then we tell them to abstain from dode and wait and wait and wait and wait to get married until later. And then we wonder why our children fall and we wonder why our sexuality is so dysfunctional. All three loves are made to work together. The rabbi Paul spoke against this to the Corinthians, telling them that if their loins burned for one another, they were to get married. He told Timothy that those who tell people to abstain from marriage were engaging teaching from demons. The sexuality thing is serious stuff for the scriptures. Uh, this one final observation kind of built off of that last uh, paragraph of notes that I had there. 
and I'll talk more about this in our discussion groups when I can speak a little bit more freely, but we have a problem in our culture that nobody wants to admit, and that is uh, for centuries and centuries and centuries, we recognize the biology of the human being. When the human being went through puberty, we got married uh, in all ancient cultures because it was the obvious observation. Now, as culture progressed and evolved, uh, and we started to get more and more educated, and we started to take things further and further and further, we started waiting later and later because of education, all in the name of progress. I'm not arguing that that was necessarily a problem in and of itself. I'm certainly not arguing we should go back to marrying off our kids at 13 or 14. I don't want to be that kind of a wacko. That's not necessarily my point at all. But as the world evolved, the church failed to address a new problem that came as a result. As we gave in to the industrial revolution and the educational revolution, and this gap of what we would call adolescence has gotten wider and wider and wider, we as the church have have not acknowledged that we never stop to say, this is creating a, a sexual tension God designed our bodies biologically to work in a particular way. We are now operating outside of that design. Not that it can't be done, but I just wish when I was growing up, I got to tell, I got to tell my listeners, I won't tell you too much. I failed in this area all throughout my adolescence. This was, this was my area of greatest failure as a person, as a human being. It's the shame I carried with me uh, for uh, for a lot of my life was my failures in this area, uh, growing up as an adolescent in particular, premarital. And, uh, I just wish somebody would have acknowledged the problem because nobody ever did. Everybody just said, just don't do it. Sex is bad. Don't do it. So let alone the dysfunction that that instilled in me psychologically about what sex was. Uh, nobody ever, nobody ever acknowledged the fact that this is actually really hard. And let me tell you why it's hard because we may have we may have, to go back to our, our conversation, Brent, on Chronicles, uh, we may have given into some, uh, some imperial idols. We may have made money and progress and production a little more important than we should be, and it may have taken a toll on our sexuality. And if somebody would have just been honest with me as a 16-year-old, as a 17-year-old, if somebody would have just been honest about the problem that we had created and then, and then had a compelling reason why walking in the way of Jesus was a better way, uh, and if somebody could have articulated kingdom of priests, but nobody did. Everybody just said, here's the moral code. Here's the do's. Here's the don'ts. Uh, it didn't work. It's not working. Uh, it didn't work for me. It works for some. Uh, bless the Lord. Um, but it was a problem. It was a problem. And, uh, even as I sit here, I just want to say so much more. There's like an ocean of thoughts and an ocean of frustration and, and, and just passion behind, uh, golly, there's so much dysfunction. Um, and this is something that we need to reclaim. We need to reclaim badly, uh, or we're going to perish, um, in the realm of sexuality. So Song of Songs reminds us that healthy erotic sexuality within the context of marriage is beautiful healthy and to be celebrated as a part of God's design. We would do well to take heed of this enlightening teaching in the wisdom literature. There you have it, Mr. Billings. There we have it. Well, 
If you live on the Palouse, we hope you join us for discussion groups. Moscow on Tuesday, Pullman on Wednesday. You'll get to hear uh, Marty's half posts, half blog posts about the topic. Half my series. Half the series. Half the series before I... What happened to the other half? Well, some of it I talked about in here. Did you write them? Uh, I did not write them. I stopped writing them because I wasn't sure my heart was staying in a good place. I don't know if I was getting angry. But a lot of the content we talked about in this podcast... Um, and kind of unpacked there. So the stuff that I have written is more going deeper into some of the larger cultural systemic issues that I think we have, particularly right. in our particular conservative Christian context. Sounds good. You so go. join us uh, and hear the rest of that story. And also maybe check out our Facebook page. Perhaps Marty will toss out a little nugget of Song of Songs information there. Oh, I doubt it, but maybe. You never okay. know. Well, you never know. You never know. There's always good stuff on the Facebook page. And, of course, you can get a hold of Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at com. So thanks for joining us on the Baymaw Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>